Genesis chapter 1. Um, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the existence of God and have accepting on the basis of what the Word of God says that God exists. Um, and we also talked about in that meeting that God is eternal and the whole idea that there's never been a time when, when he wasn't and there never will be a time when he isn't. And so God is eternal. As we also asked you to help with the class and we gave you, and I don't know exactly where the breakdown was right this minute, but hopefully you will be honest and help us. Well, we broke down the group between Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, and Genesis chapter 3, and then we had you make some observations about what you learned about God from those specific chapters. We're going to back up there just a little bit before we launch, move forward this morning. So in these first three chapters of the book of Genesis, we obviously learn about creation. We learn about the creation of man. We learn about man's intended relationship with God. And from our vantage point, we see the entrance of sin into God's creation, the consequences of that sin. But we also, there are multiple things to learn about God from this particular chapter. I'm going to give you just a couple minutes sort of to put your brains back in gear, to refresh what you may have thought about during that time that we gave you two weeks ago, and then we'll let you talk. So just take a couple minutes. If you had Genesis chapter 1, please look over it again. If you had Genesis chapter 2, look over it again. And if you had Genesis chapter 3, look over it again. And you say, I don't remember. Well, neither do I. So go ahead. Thank you.
Okay, as you finished reviewing the text uh, last time, I suggested to you that um, you look at, when you see the, the word, the name God in the scripture, that you note the words that are associated with him, what, what, what is he doing, what does it say about him in that particular place, and also to note the move from the word God to the word Lord God in this text. So somebody, and I know that was basically this group over here, somebody that had Genesis chapter 1 want to make, and if it could have been said last week, we're sort of just reviewing, but any observations that you're making from God, about God from, from this text? John? Okay. So apparently there was something there before if you have to replenish something, that means you had something there that was removed before. No, it does not it does not mean that, John. Not, we're not we do not believe in a gap theory. Laura? Um, I think it's like the measurable. Immeasurable. Okay. Yep. Anyone else? Everything you made was good. 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 Tells you something about the author when you can talk about the product being good, right? Anyone else? Okay. So, who remembers whether they were in Genesis chapter 2 or Genesis chapter 3? Chapter 2? This, have, have all of you noticed this august group of young men that I have sitting here in front of me? You notice they're not in the back row? So most, some of them were in my cl- last class I had, and they didn't sit in the back row in that class either. I, I'm impressed. So, and I'm, there's nothing wrong with being in the back row. From the time I could choose my seat in class, I've always sat in the back. So, you know, I don't know what that says about me, but that's where I sit. So all the way through college, all the way through seminary, um, had to sit on the front a platform for so many years of my life that I guess that anytime I don't have to sit up there and look at everybody else, I can sit in the back and look at the people's back, back of their heads. So, but I like this group right here. Okay. So Genesis chapter 2, what about, uh, would you learn, what, what kind of observations can you make about God from Genesis chapter 2? Now, now that you've admitted being in that group, you have to talk. Amos? History, okay. Steve? Provider. Excuse me? Provider. 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 He provided. Okay. Anyone else? Yes, Doug? Yep, God didn't want us men to be alone. We would have been a mess. <laughs> Monty? Okay. When he created man and woman, then he, he entered into a relationship with them. Okay. Who remembers what we talked about when we talked about what the word Lord uh, signifies, what, what the significance of the word Lord is? Anyone? I know most of you know. You just don't want to raise your hand. You just don't want to tell me. You don't want to be wrong or right. Go ahead, Braden. 
Yeah, he's the covenant-keeping God, the promise keeper. Okay, so he entered a relationship with man, and he entered into promises or, of relationship and kept them. Okay? Anybody then with chapter 3? I don't have, think I have very many people left there, but it seems like there were some left in chapter 3. Uh, anybody want to talk about it at all? Again, about God, from the, that group that had chapter 3. What did God do on a regular basis in chapter 3? What did he do in the morning and the evening, folks? Uh, he came and communi- communed fellowship with his creation, didn't he? Okay. Okay, so we'll launch out from there and see where else we can get in the course of our morning together. So, question is often asked if you can t- want to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. You should be familiar with that passage for, as far as our study is concerned. The question comes up, can we know God? Can we know God? And there's a couple references. This one is sort of a, I think, an indirect passage, but nevertheless it's here. Uh, Genesis chapter 4 and verse 18. The question is asked, to whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare to him? The implication is that you have to know something before you can compare it or liken. So the implication is that there is a knowability about God so that you can take that knowability then and, and place it over against who God really is. But turn with me in, in addition to that to John 17, 3. This is in the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ as he's talking to the Father. And in John 17 and verse 3 he says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And essentially when we answer the question, can we know God, this book is basically the answer to that question because God gave us this book so we could know him. And he wouldn't have given this book just to tell us stories about David and Goliath or Daniel in the lion's den or something like that. He gave this this book so that we could know about him, so that we could know facts about him and then go beyond those facts that we could know about him to a beginning of a comprehension or an understanding about him. So God is knowable. He can be known. He just can't be completely comprehended. And at least for me, as soon as I think I'm coming to the point where I might have some comprehension, I realize how little comprehension I have, how little um, understanding that I have. I can gain It's a lot easier to gain in facts about God. It's a lot easier to gain in knowledge about God than it is to to gain a comprehension or an understanding about who God is. So in the scripture, God declares himself as through factual statements. God is light. God is love. uh, God is truth and so forth. And he also 
communicates himself to us as we observe his activities, as we observe his activities his char- and the characteristics. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it or if you've read it, uh, but if you have not and would like to uh, sort of pursue this matter of knowing God, then the um, book was written now back, it was written in the 1970s, I think, um, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Um, so it's, it's a readable book. Uh, it's not beyond uh, comp- understanding or following through the book. And it is something that I would encourage you to consider uh, reading if you have not read it. At least read sections of it. Maybe, maybe there's only cha- certain chapters of it that are, are interesting to you. But the book by J.I. Packer, Knowing God, is a book that does relate to this. And finally, in reference to this matter of knowing God, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah 9, chapter, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. So, it's a lot easier to measure a bank account to measure your accomplishments, to measure your promotions at work, your changes of job, jobs that have increased your status in society. It's a lot easier to keep track of your degrees that you've earned uh, and things like that. It is much more difficult to really measure how much you know and understand God, but it is the thing that ought to consume us in pursuing that avenue of life is to know him better and understand him better. And Jeremiah certainly exalts that whole uh, conclusion that knowing God is the primary part of being here and being alive. So as we continue to have this sort of introduction, brief introduction to the subject of who God is, and then focusing more later as we move into the class into God the Father, uh, another just a word I've put here on your, on your notes just to sort of keep track of is the, the word nature. We, talk, we will talk, uh, as we move along, we will talk about God's nature and uh, from time to time probably. And the word nature is a word that describes the, as I've put here in your notes, the sum total of all of his attributes. Everything that we know about God, when we know about the, those things we know about God, we're going to talk about that in a, in a few weeks the attributes of God, then we can come down to a conclusion about God's nature, about what his very essential, everything about him is boiled down to that matter. Um, and when, I'm, when I say something about like the sum total of his, of his attributes, um, sometimes we, we have not had a pet for many years at this point in our lives, but we have had pets before, everything from goldfish to to a, a dog along the way. But, you know, sometimes we will uh, see an animal do something that is like sort of 
I, I don't know if I can use the word unusual, but just different. And we'll ascribe to them like, wow, that's, that looks like, you know, just like a person or just like whatever. But when you tum, sum up the total of that animal's characteristics, you will not conclude that they're a human. You'll still conclude that they're a pig or a cow or a dog or a cat or whatever. And so when we look at God, we have to, we have to do the sum total of all of those things that we know about him to know what his nature is because his nature controls all of his activities and all of his things that we, we learn about him. So just a word to sort of tuck away as we continue to move through this matter. Another thing that you see this as you read about God, okay? You get a theology book out, um, whatever level, and it's likely to use the word essence to talk about God. And, um, and sometimes they'll substitute that word essence for, with the word being, being. And um, the only way I can start you thinking in the right direction is, and, it, and it, you don't, can't take it very far, just, it's just sort of a ledge, a little tiny ledge that you want to stand on, is that we have a body, okay, and all of us can't deny whatever part of that body is, whether it's growing or whatever, but we all have a body. And then very carefully step over to the fact that God has essence or being, Okay, his spirit. There's no question about that. Okay, we know that Jesus Christ took upon himself flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, we know that though he was existing as God in the past, that he he became in the likeness of man. He took upon himself the form of a servant, etc. But just it's just a word that for hundreds of years, and I guess none of it, nobody's come up with a better word. It's just a word that is used to sort of describe the fact that God does exist. We can't measure him. We can't do any of those things. But he does exist, and he exists. And, and that word then that's used to describe that is that he has essence or that he has a being. Again, be very careful, you know, trying to make too much of that word, but just trying to introduce you to a word that you might read if you're reading about God in an in quotes theology book. Uh, as, as stated on your notes, there's no scientific appearance or explanation. Um, God has chosen, uh, as, as shown in the scripture from time to time, to let himself be seen by man in some form or fashion. Uh, specifically, obviously, we, we've just referenced Christ. But, you know, the burning bush, the Shekinah glory... Um, those, those words that are more, you know, in the Old Testament, but it does defy scientific definition or explanation, as I put here on the notes. So, in reference to that, then, he is living, he is relational, relational, and he's intelligent, as we consider the fact that he does exist, but he always exists in this sense of a spirit versus a physical being that we are more common with and more comfortable with along the way. And then just a statement that sometimes the statements end up on your notes because they're statements that I come up with as I'm studying, and they may seem random, and sometimes they are random. Um, as I was, you know, sitting there studying and thinking and writing up my notes, you know, then it's just, you know, I stop and at times and just 
reflect or meditate, ask myself, where have I been? Where am I going with my notes? Uh, hopefully trying to make sure that they stay on track along the way. And just as I was doing that, my notes with this particular time, it just was that to deny the existence of God is to be a fool, which is what Psalm 14.1 says. And so just, you know, talk, really talking to this point just about the fact that God is, that God exists. And to deny that, the scripture just comes right out and states that you're a fool if you, if you come to that conclusion, that you're not, not wise. It doesn't mean that you lack intelligence or that you lack education. It just means that you're not wise, that you're not taking that information you have and drawing a wise conclusion. The next subject that we have here is, as you see, I've sort of, I think, given you several different thoughts about the will of God, his purposes, his plan, the decree. This is a part about God that will create a certain amount of resistance at times, a certain amount of confusion at times, um, and I'm not going to stand here and try to tell you that I'm going to clarify any or all of that in your mind. Um, probably it's most likely to be something that would be clarified in a one-on-one conversation, on a one-to-one, let's look at the Bible together and search through what the Scripture teaches together. Um, So even before I say anything too much beyond that for this morning, I would just say to you that I would just encourage you to to actually, if if you are at, if you're not comfortable with your position on the will of God or your understanding of the will of God, don't just take somebody else's position on it. Take the scripture, take all the verses that you possibly can find on it, study the scripture prayerfully, make notes that you can go back and review, and then draw your conclusion, trusting God to lead you to as, clear, as close to a scriptural conclusion as possible, and draw a conclusion that you are comfortable with in relationship to the will of God. Now, I'm not telling you I don't know what I believe. I do. Uh, I'm just not wanting today to make you believe what I believe. I want you to believe what God's Word says is true. And and, um, so, I say all that to say nothing, probably, but um, that is uh, some comments or observations I want to make to begin with along the way. And I would remind you, obviously, that the plan is only as good as the author of the plan, okay? And since we believe such wonderful things about who God is, then that ought to allow us to draw positive, wonderful conclusions about what God's will is, okay? So, So keep that sort of in mind as we move along. One of the things that can be observed about the, sometimes about the will of God is it can appear to be, from what we would consider humanly, to be self-centered, to be, in quotes, selfish. Because God's will is all about 
bringing glory to himself, bringing attention back to who he is, okay? So if I do that, then that's being self-centered. That's being, you know, selfish. But as I've put here in your notes, as God brings glory back to himself and we are drawn from our lives, drawn from our focus back to a focus on God, that really is drawing us closer to God because it's making us appreciate more who God is. And so the very fact that God is self-centered is really for our benefit, for our good, because he doesn't, doesn't do things to draw, put attention on other people or other things which are, or, which are of no value to us. He brings glory back to himself so that all of our focus and all of our attention will be back to him, and he is the only one that can benefit us in our daily lives, in the way we live, okay? So it may seem, you know, we're doing all this for the glory of God. Well, you know, if we said, we're doing all this for the glory of Roy Allison, everybody would go like, oh, yeah, well, we're going home, okay? We're going home. Because I can't do much for you, okay? Stand up here and stammer in front of you for a few minutes each Sunday. But God is all sufficient and, and completely able. And so the very thing that's sometimes leveled against a comprehensive will of God, a comprehensive plan of God, an all-efficient will of God, is that it's self-centered. It brings all the focus back. But we need to understand why that focus back on God is important because it takes our attention away from all the other things and brings them back to God and God alone. God's plan in some fashion does include the potential as well as the actual. Um, How many times in some days does your plan just for the day change? Just for the day. Not for, not for a week, not for a month, not for a lifetime, but for a day. You know? How many of you, going back however many years you want to go back, could have projected yourself as being right where you are today? Until 2010, I didn't even know that Calvary Bible Church existed. So I couldn't have, certainly couldn't have projected myself as being here, as being in this place. And how many times do our, our plans change in a given day? And God's plan doesn't have to change because obviously his abilities and knowledge are beyond that. But that's nevertheless where we're at. Another thing, as you consider the will of God, again, I would just simply say to you, focus on what the scripture declares and not on what you don't understand. Because there will always be questions, but on the other side of the question marks, there should be more positives, more pluses than, and I don't want to put put the questions in the area of minuses, but you have questions, but you have things, these are the things I know about God's will, these are the things I believe about God's will, these are the things I'm comfortable in my knowledge about God's will and keep track of those rather than, well, I don't understand how he does that. I don't understand, 
you know, this part or that part or whatever. And then I've, I've already sort of jumped ahead of my nose, but where our plans are so fragile and, and we don't know a whole lot about them. Um, I have some scripture references here on your note. I'm going to just slide by them for just a minute, and we're going to come back to them. Um, I will remind you, uh, if you come up with a view on the plan of God that excuses you for your actions, it is wrong. It is wrong. You are not a robot. Uh, you are n- God is never responsible for our decisions. Um, many years ago, there was a dis- sort of a popular saying around it. I think it was popularized actually by some comedian or something, but th- that Satan made me do it. Um, sometimes, you know, you can draw a conclusion that, it, well, God made me do it. I'm, I'm in that will of God, and he, everything he wants happens, and so when I sin, he, that's what he wanted, and that's why it happened. No, you sinned because you were drawn away of your own lust, James chapter 1 tells us. And uh, when that lust was brought to fruition, it, it uh, led you into sin. But, so that is never a biblical vantage point or viewpoint on the will of God. And again, just sort of a statement, I am to rest or wait. Remember we talked about waiting on the Lord a couple of weeks ago. And the absolute confidence that God is in control while exercising a determination to live according to God's standards and expectations. I never am removed from being responsible for doing the right thing, for bringing back to the other us, uh, to bringing back glory to God. Um, I'm going to probably just, I'm going to come back. For years, I I grew up uh, having um, the will of God described as being the perfect will of God, the permissive will of God. I that's maybe still fairly popular, I don't know. Um, it has some real issues as far as I'm concerned. Uh, opens itself up to a lot of uh, deviations and question marks. And so I'll come back to this uh, sometime in the, along the way, but uh, maybe a little bit better way of describing the will of God is to describe it as a decretive will of God and the preceptive will of God. Excuse me? Decretive. D-E-C-R-E-T-I-V-E. Okay, I'd like us just to look at some scripture references, okay? As we draw this to occlusion here. Down at the, toward the end of your um, notes, I have uh, what conclusion do you make from the scripture passages God will, God's will is blank. And what I was wanting you to do is look at some of those uh, verses and then on your own draw, make some conclusions. And so there's a couple other passages I think I left off the second passage because they were in the first passage. But let's begin looking at the scripture. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. The will of God is, the decree of God is described as eternal. Um, and now that this is just me, okay? So, so look, I'm the one talking, not somebody else. I'm not talking for somebody else, okay? When, when I say that the decree of God is eternal, my concept of that, and notice the 
pr pronoun I use, my concept of that is that sometime in the past, beyond our comprehension and understanding that God, that God had, had a plan and a decree. I am not ready to stand here and tell you that the decree of God is equally eternal as God is eternal. I'm not sure that there was a, a time that God included this particular aspect of his decree and put it into action in reference to us, okay? When you think about God being eternal and you think about man being here maybe 12,000 years out of eternity, it's sort of hard sometimes to bring those two, in quotes, numbers. When you've got one number that's infinity and you've got another number that's finite, it's sort of hard to bring them into relationship or whatever. Um, but in reference to this, uh, let's, again, we'll just look at some of these scripture references. In Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 11, it says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, the last part of the verse, of course, is the part that we're talking about, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The word works is a word that, as always, demonstrates personal activity, describes personal interest and involvement. So this is not something like uh, the deist came up with this idea that's, you know, sort of like God sort of wound up a clock and then he just set it out there to work out, work out in motion. And as long as the clock was wound appropriately or tight enough, things will work out. That is not... God is not passive in that sense. God is active in accomplishing the purposes of his decree. Now, how you describe that activity, you know, I mean, when someone can speak things into existence, as he spoke things into existence in chapter 1 of Genesis, I mean, the idea of activity is hard for us to, to wrap a brain around. You know, but he is active. He is not just passive. He is not just set things in motion and let the, letting them run. He is, he is actively involved. For a minute ago, I let, let, lost track of where I was going with my, what little brain I have left. Um, so there are words, several different words used in the Scripture, throughout the Scripture, to describe the will of God. One of the words indicates what we... If we use that word... It would be when, when I was thinking about developing a plan. It would be that idea of, of deliberation, of meditation. Again, we shouldn't take all of the significance of the way the word is used for us and put it back on God because that would be limiting God. Okay? I have to have a plan, and sometimes I change that plan, and sometimes I change that plan again. God didn't have to go through the, that kind of a process. Okay. There, there, another one of the words that is used to describe the will of God is a word that, the, that would describe the parts of the will of God that are pleasing to him. Okay. He is not pleased by my sin. Okay. Um, he is not pleased by the attitude that I have some days. Okay. Uh, and so, so, but there are times when I may do, may do something that does bring him pleasure, that does satisfy him with where my life is going as it is filled by the Spirit of God and as, as I am manifesting the fruit of the Spirit of God. But there are times that I do things that are not 
pleasing to God, though they are a part of God's will, of what God is accomplishing overall as he continues to bring glory to himself. Then back to, let's just look at, we'll look at another verse in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. To the intent now that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church through the principalities and powers in heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask you, do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. So it talks about the eternal purposes of God, but it also, if you notice that Paul starts and makes that into a personal, practical application that the very things that Paul is going through in life are linked to that eternal purpose and they are a part of what God is accomplishing, not only for Paul, but for the readers at the church of Ephesus. So there's a sort of a two-fold aspect to that particular verse that we're looking at, looking at there. Turn back with me to Isaiah 46. Now, if you chose to launch out into your own study on the will of God and, and, and search this out more, obviously these verses that, I'm, that I've written down here are really just a small percentage of the verses that are available to you um, to do in, in that particular study. And here in Isaiah 46, beginning with verse 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, uh, the man who executes my counsel, etc., etc. But notice again that God is declaring himself as the author of the, of the will and talks about beginning and end. Uh, references, ancient times, etc., etc. So there's, uh, again, just one more reference in this passage to that matter. And then over to Dan- the book of Daniel. This is probably a verse that m- most of you know what, at least what the reference is. Content, you may not be able to quote it out along the way, but... And in Daniel chapter 4, and I'm going to pick up in the middle of verse 34. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does, nothing, does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? So, where does the, these verses, and there's obviously more, I'm look, watching the clock. Uh, where do these verses, where does this matter of the will of God all come into f- focus when we start to talk about God as our Father? Okay? God as our Father. 
don't really have probably the setting to get you to be honest about it enough to, to pursue this. But if those of you that are in this room right now that are fathers at whatever stage, some of you uh, relatively new fathers, some of you, uh, you know, maybe there may be, I know there are great, great, great grandparents in this room. So you've, you've had more than one generation that you've influenced and, and led and guided through, through life. Um, so what does the will of God have, what bearing or what reference does it have to me and my relationship to God the Father? We as fathers, human fathers, uh, probably have something in mind for where our children end up. We probably have, we have certainly given them guidance in, in pointing them in a certain direction and guiding them in a certain way. But my guidance is limited. Uh, my thoughts about what I would end up, what my child, children to end up being is limited. But God's will determines that we can accomplish what he wants us to accomplish because of who he is. And, and that, is the, that is the importance of coming to a conclusion about does God exist, exist is God eternal, um, can I know God, uh, those things, some, coming to some personal biblical conclusions about what the will of God is overall and what the will of God is for me. Because as I have that confidence and knowledge about who God is, then that gives me that much more in the way of confidence as I move through life. Moving through life is difficult enough without having some places of anchor. And, we, and that anchor does not just stay, you know, in time. It doesn't stay in one place in time. It moves from place to place, but it always ends up being back to where God is because God's will is something that's for our good and something that God is actively involved in. Now, I've left out a lot of verses here that I haven't gotten to. Um, I knew when I put together the notes that I wouldn't get to them no matter how I tried to get to them. And so I encourage you to look at the verses, sort of continue to work on this a little bit, knowing that what you believe about this will definitely affect what you believe about God as your, as your Father. Father, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for your word and for the accuracy, the authority of your word, the power of your word. We thank you for who you are. Help us to know about, more about you from the study of your word and help us to come to a better comprehension and understanding of who you really, really are. In Jesus' name, amen.